0: The Startup Sensations Podcast. First hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. Welcome to Startup Sensations. From both sides of the pond. With Belent Osman and Shelley Bays. Welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations Podcast from both sides of the pond. With me, Belen Tosman, from just outside London in England. And me, Shelley
1: Bays, north of San Francisco by the ocean.
0: So Shelley, we have another really interesting episode today. And it's really all about, I think, the fundamentals of starting up and running a startup company from the point of view of a founder. We've got a very interesting guest who we will introduce shortly. But what's been your experiences in in actually the nuts and bolts of running a startup company?
1: What I would call the pragmatic aspects of running a startup are not those things that are publicized that look magical and exciting and wonderful, but they're the things that make a company successful in the end. So I always think of it in terms of one has to have a closet full of hats, And each day or maybe each few hours, one takes out a different hat. And today my hat is chief marketing officer. And uh, later today, my hat is chief finance officer. And, oh, in between, I'm negotiating a little bit of a squabble between some team members. And, oh, my goodness, the patents. I haven't dealt with the patents in a long time. So being on top of the details Knowing who to go to for expert help on these details, all of this is the quote unquote boring stuff, but this is the goldmine. This is what really makes a company work. I'm sure you've, you've had the similar kind of experience, haven't you, Belend?
0: Yes, absolutely. And um, it's interesting. I, I, I do speak to first time founders. Sometimes I speak about the role that they face. And I've said to one, I said, think of yourself as a drone. And he said, what does that mean? I said, well, okay, you've got to almost, as a CEO, as a founder, behave like a drone. You can be up at 500 feet looking at the whole of the company The big picture, if you like. And then the next minute you're meeting somebody, maybe the finance person or the administrator or somebody, you fly down into the weeds and then you're looking at specific numbers. And then you've got to move from one area to another area, from sales to marketing, to looking after customers. Then you're back up in the air, looking at the big picture again. So. Yes, you've got to wear those multiple hats, but you need to be super agile as well.
1: Good analogy.
0: And it's interesting today, we've got a really interesting guest. I mean, she, she's a wonderful lady from North America. You've met her, you know her, don't you, Shelley? So why don't you introduce who our guest is this week?
1: Yeah, definitely. Vicky Ferrar. And Vicki, I find just uh, an absolutely lovely person to know, but also a fascinating story because here's a woman who has had a really impressive career as a lawyer and then got bit somehow by the startup bug, but she is now on her second very successful startup in the medical devices area. So this is not trivial. And um, I think the kinds of things we want to learn from Vicky are around this topic of how do you manage the very basic pragmatic details of running a startup, especially when you can't know everything there is to know. You can't be everywhere and everything at once. So I think this will be a really fun interview.
0: Vicky Farrar now joins us from Salt Lake City in Utah. Vicki, welcome to the Startup Sensations podcast. We're really thrilled to have you here. How are you today?
1: I'm good and glad to be here. Hey, thank you for being here because uh, you have a very busy life these days. You know, I especially wanted you to be on this program because you have such an interesting background um, and I wanted people to kind of learn how you morphed evolved from this very corporate and very successful background in law uh, for a number of years many different specialties but the legal profession which is you know very structured and and, and ordered and now you're running your second startup in the medical devices area. So, how did you make that transition? That's that's a really impressive transition.
2: So, it, it it's a very fun story, actually. So, I never wanted to do anything at all other than practice law and my idol was Perry Mason, for real. So, I thought I was going to put people on the witness stand and they were going to break down and I was going to win all these great, great trials and everything else. Started practicing law that wasn't what it was like at all. So, what what I did do is um, basically patent litigation, trade secret litigation, and other kinds of commercial litigation. So I spent almost every single day taking somebody's deposition, writing a brief, or going to court and uh, filing and arguing motions. You don't go to very many trials as a as a corporate uh, corporate lawyer, so. Um, I started out in Washington, D.C. and then uh, went west to to Denver and then to Silicon Valley. And it's in Silicon Valley that I really focused on uh, biotech and medical devices. So we represented a lot of um, startups, you know, sole practitioners doing something out of the garage to the great big companies. Um, So I was practicing law in uh, Palo Alto and I was assigned to somebody by the name of Dennis Farrar and my law firm was drafting the patents for Myriad Genetics. Myriad discovered the predisposing breast and ovarian cancer genes and we were writing their patents that ultimately went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So Dennis Farrar um, was from Salt Lake City and since he had a firm in Silicon Valley already doing his patent work, he had a startup trade secret patent infringement issue and literally, guys, I was assigned to him. So the first few uh, encounters that we had, he went from Salt Lake City to Silicon Valley to meet with me. I thought they were business meetings. He says they were dates, and all I did was talk about business. So anyway, (laughs) I ended up dating him and marrying him and taking 100% of my work from a big law firm to finish up uh, in Salt Lake City. It took me about five years to do that. And then I worked for a couple of his startups. And then I came home one day in 2008 and said, honey bun, I'm done. I want to do my own startup. And he's like, well, what do you know? And I say, I know what a 510K FDA clearance is because I did that in 1977 at this big fancy law firm. And that's what I want. I want something really, really simple that I can get on the market.
1: You know, just as a point of clarification for our listeners The 510-K that Vicky's referring to is a very, very important FDA pre-market approval process for medical devices. Yeah. And that is important. So
2: I started a company in 2008, an infection control company, and we ended up with patent litigation. And had I not been a patent litigator, we would have been out of business overnight. I reactivated my California license. I did all the initial work myself. We developed the product. We won all our litigations. And we ultimately sold to uh, Merit Medical, and I was on the board of the my current company, Lightline Medical. And when I sold to Merit, they asked me to be the CEO, and I have to say I love it. But I use my background every single day on every aspect of the business.
1: So, Vicky, I can understand that's interesting uh, how you explain that from the standpoint of the company. This. Specifically, this type of company needing some real deep legal expertise. But where did you get the technology, the product? How did you deal with that other side of it?
2: Okay, yeah. I mean, all I wanted was something. And um, we're, we're, I'm in Salt Lake City where the University of Utah is. And about my husband has started up 13 companies, most of them had licensed technology from the University of Utah. So I went to a two-hour lunch with the head of technology transfer at the University of Utah, and I said, "Jane, can you tell me every invention disclosure that you have that's easy, 510K, nothing too complex, I want to get a product on the market. So she goes over everything, and I say, "She, none of them interest me. And then she says, well, you know, your husband's seed venture fund uh looked at this technology invented by two nurses from the va hospital in salt lake city and they didn't even get a return phone call i said tell me all about it and she did and i went home and said why didn't these guys get a return phone call that's like what the vcs do how could you do that denny he said oh it was my partner engineer's job to get back to them any event. i said would you help me due diligence and he said yes so I spent about six months doing the diligence. And one of the things I did was I met with a biomedical engineer at the University of Utah and he blew me off and he, we went to lunch and he said, this is really interesting. Do you have financials? I said, no, this is invented by two male nurses from the VA hospital in Salt Lake. Vicki, when you get financials, come back. And he assumes he is never, ever, ever, ever going to see me again. So my nephew was in uh, getting an MBA at Kellogg in Chicago. And I said, I have a project for you. And he wrote a financial plan that is just like an investment banker would write, which he is now in Los Angeles. I gave that plan to Bob Hitchcock, this biomedical engineer who thought he would never see me again. And he says, Vicki, this is fabulous. I want to be a co-founder and I want you to license it to the University of Utah because I can help you more if it's a part of the university's. So that's what I did. I in licensed to the University of Utah. Bob Hitchcock was my uh, co-founder. He is now my chief technology officer at Lightline Medical, still a biomedical engineer. But from him and his contacts, I had all the technical stuff that I needed. And having worked for five plus years with my husband's companies, I knew enough about how to get funding And how to write a plan and a lot of the sales I learned on the on the way.
1: What I'm taking away is you didn't try to be everything though. You were smart in terms of finding other resources and pulling them in that knew what they were doing on the sales side or the technical side or the Whatever. Yeah. So for a a young lawyer who is at the stage where they say I I I, I kind of like to jump into something a bit more exploratory and risky, what are you going to tell them in terms of what it felt like?
2: Oh, okay. So it's way harder than being a first year associate where you're working you know ninety hours a week uh, um, at a big corporate law firm, but it's so much more exciting. So instead of just making a lot of money for a big corporation, I'm actually saving lives and it what I still have people that send me the product that we invented um, when they go to a hospital and they see my product on an IV tubing line. it's an antiseptic cap and I'll get a photo and it says, oh, here I was. It just feels so different from just making money and having incredibly interesting intellectual arguments to make. okay so it's just it's it's different, but you need the same, Drive to understand every aspect. And you're right, to get help when you don't know. I mean, there's just no way to know everything. It it just feels like much, much more fun. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. To see your product. And that's why I wanted a 510K. And I'll just tell you, the company that I left of my husband's was a stem cell company, and I said, "You're never going to have a product on the market in my lifetime," and that's why I'm leaving. And guess <laughs> what? Fast forward 2023, no product on the market. You don't tell him that. Yeah, I tell what I do.
0: Vicki, I mean, I'm I'm really enjoying your enthusiasm and your passion and your story so far. You know, for you to be able to pull this off requires truly inspired leadership. So can I just ask you what your definition of leadership is, good leadership? And what are the qualities that you look for in, in other people around you?
2: Okay. So I think um first of all you have to treat everybody well. People work for you, but they need to feel like they're part of the team and it, they're an important part of the team no matter what they're doing. So I think having like an atmosphere where people want to go to work, they want to solve the problems. Um, you have to instill in that. You, you, there's, there's nobody else that can do it. And I think as a, a, a woman, I'm working primarily with engineers uh, mm. that really think differently. Okay, like totally different. Um, that is just um, a skill set that I think I potentially learned on the job, how to communicate with them and make them feel important, even though they're not giving the pitches, they're not bringing in the money but they've got what you need. So I think um, having a good atmosphere is one thing. Listening to everybody's ideas, okay? Um, We made major changes in each company from what we had started out doing uh, that were very important. And um, the ideas often did not come from me, they came from others. And I think listening to everybody's idea, no matter how, you know, how insignificant it might seem is incredibly important. And I'll just give you an example. We have a, a company lunch once a week and every other week, it's just to get together, okay? If there's no agenda. And every other week, there's a real agenda and we wanna know what, we wanna update everybody. But I think it's impossible to do yourself. So as much as I don't love delegating, <laughs> okay, it's not my favorite thing but it's impossible not to do. And I would say something else, and that is, this is one nice thing about being in Salt Lake City and not Silicon Valley. I have never once called somebody with expertise in Utah and asked them for advice and not gotten it. Nobody ever said, what's in it for me? Everybody in this community is very entrepreneurial and very willing to help you. And I've had a lot of help from, uh, you know, employees to to board members, to advisors, to just companies, and people I've called cold. I've worked with an epidemiologist now for since my last company. I cold called him. I had gotten some information that I couldn't understand from an epidemiologist. I was wondering if somebody who spoke my language could uh, could help me, and. Um, I'll never forget being in a presentation that he did for um, APIC, uh, the Professional Association for Infection Control. And there are all these big companies listed for conflict of interest, like 20 of them that he's working with. They're at the bottom, as little catheter connections, (laughs) you know. So- uh,
1: You made the list. I made the list. But
2: it's being, I think, really open to ideas and to differences. I don't care what people look like or anything. I only care about how can we work together to get my product commercialized.
1: And those are really important points. And bravo, because not every CEO operates that way. And, and I agree with you. That is that is the, the gold standard, so to speak. So fundraising. Fundraising is the bugaboo for many entrepreneurs. It's it, you know it's the one that raises the blood pressure and increases the stress and is yep. hard and difficult and takes them away from what they'd rather be doing which is running the company so tell us a little bit about how you approach fundraising some of the war stories things that have worked not worked so um l- let me just say unlike a lot of people i actually love
2: the fundraising <laughs> okay <laughs> i like to pitch and um I spend a lot of time um, perfecting it. Uh, so even though the technology stays the same, my pitch changes, okay, uh, from questions that I get, et cetera. So um, for the kind of company that I'm on, uh, Lightline Medical, I got my first major investment from Merit Medical, which I had sold my last company to. That was because everything was going well with the last company and he saw an opportunity. So that wasn't that gruesome. But then I had to go out and get a lot more money And we had close to $3 million in notes and uh, convertible notes and safe agreements. That's brutal. No valuation. Nobody knows what it's worth, but you've got this money and you've got to, you know, what are you going to do? So eventually um, I found an angel group that I did do work with and came up with a valuation and got funding. But it was at a time when I went there in 2019, I was out of money and Uh, We were paying rent and health insurance, and that's all. And our rent was about 300 bucks at the Center for Medical Innovation at the University of Utah, so it's almost free. And I was perfectly honest that we're running out of money, and everything is kind of at a standstill until we raise money. And I don't think anybody didn't invest because we were running out of money. And then uh, now I've gone to like all kinds of angel groups, and VCs, and family offices, and Individual investors have invested over and over and over again. And finally, just finally, we are close at this company now to filing for FDA clearance at the end of the year. But it's, you know, it's been a long haul. And I think being transparent with potential investors, you know, when they ask you what, you know, what keeps you up at night, like not bullshitting it about, like tell them what really does. And for us, it's not the technology. I'm sure that's going to work. But I think, you know, being honest about what are the, what are the issues is totally important. And um, I, I've got a lot of investors that um, help me get other investors and make intros. But it's brutal and you just can't give up. And I don't take it hard when somebody basically trashes what you're doing. And it does happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, you can go to an angel meeting and you've got one person. And this happened to me in New York. Uh, one person said it was an older scientist who was a woman. And she said to me, you know, you're using visible light to prevent infections. That doesn't work. Everybody knows that doesn't work. Really? What can you do about it? We did not get investment from that group, I might add. Uh, but it was because she she just sabotaged it.
1: Yeah, I've seen that sort of situation where one person in a group can sway the whole conversation and put you... Sort of on your on your heels, but so you can't you can't
2: give up. Uh, my my experienced husband says I raise money retail because he does not. Okay, so he goes to the big VCs and I do not. But you never know who you're going to meet where. Like my husband will say, "That was a long phone call. Who, who was that, and how much did they invest?" Right, and I don't look at it that way, and I have. Um, gone to conferences and other things where I didn't get a dime out of it, but I made some connections that were absolutely invaluable. And that that, that has happened more than once or twice or 10 times. So you don't know who is going to introduce you to who, and you don't know what expertise they might have.
1: Yeah. It's building the network. It's the connections. Absolutely.
0: It sounds like you've built a, a really impressive team, Vicky. So, what what is it you look for in your team members, and, and what upsets you and what frustrates you? Because clearly, you're a very positive and influential individual. I can already tell that. But what what upsets you uh, some of the time?
2: As I sort of mentioned before, the really the only thing in the entire world I care about is: Are you competent to do your job, and will you do it? And will you let us know when things aren't right? Like, I do not want a rosy report every, week, every other week when we meet. I want to know, really, every week, what are the challenges and what are the risks? I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they come to work in. It's just totally, totally irrelevant. The thing that is very frustrating is when somebody needs assistance and refuses to get it. I would say that is the primary reason that I have terminated people. It's because they refused assistance. So for instance, if you're having problems with microbiology, I have three microbiologists that you can consult with. Okay. They're experienced, they're retired from big companies and they'll talk to you. Now I don't need any help. Or somebody is getting help from somebody in the company and doesn't want it. Okay. Like they come and they say, I can't report to him. I, I don't like him. Uh, it's like, it has nothing to do with the situation. And it, it always turns out to be somebody trying to help where there is weakness or a need for some assistance and they don't like it. And that, uh, that I think has been the hardest part of doing a, a startup for me has been getting rid of people when you need to, because the work isn't getting done and you're a startup and you're tiny and you go, I can't get rid of that person. I won't have anybody that that I think in in each of my companies has been the biggest flaw that I've had in terms of the team. My team now is fabulous; they like working together, and that is important.
1: So, so Vicky, you're lucky in a way uh, with your husband, um, kind of in the background, <laughs> giving you counsel when you want it, probably sometimes when you don't want it. But how else? do you get, as the CEO who's there sort of in charge, where else do you look for a guidance, feedback, um, perspective? That's a good question. So we have a seven-member
2: board. Two of my board members, I consider them almost part of management. Okay. One is retired from C.R. Bard and BARD Access Kelly Powers. He's put 100 medical devices on the market, revenues exceeding $15 billion. Mm. So I will literally go to his house, meet at a restaurant and say, I'm writing this manufacturing contract and I need help. And I did that. We went to his house. We spent four or five hours together. And then I said, well, we're not done. And he says, well, when would you like to continue? And I said, could we continue tomorrow? (laughs) So he's one board member that I need guidance from all the time. Sales strategy, uh, plan B, if I don't get a partner, uh, how to entice a partner to to really pay attention to us. Um, Another board member, his name is Mark Ellert. He was responsible 30 years ago for taking a peritoneal dialysis UV product off the market because it degraded catheter materials. Our first product is a visible light product, but peritoneal dialysis. He knows everybody in the field and all the problems that resulted. And he too is a working board member. I need his assistance. And I'll give you one example for him. I needed a CFO badly this year, and I didn't have the time to find one, interview one, or basically anything. So we hired, um, you know them, uh, a Max Shapiro's group out of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, But he lives in uh, Michigan and the peninsula. He said, I will do every interview with you I'll read every resume, and when when we pick who, who we'd like to interview in person, I will come to Salt Lake City. When we had problems with microbiologists, he's a microbiologist by training. He's retired, not from microbiology, but being a medical device executive, he came and worked with our microbiologist. So, I mean, I think that the skill is recognizing what they can do for you, and then asking for it, and asking for it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not
1: sorry I'm asking for it. I need it. So it's either creating a board of, that consists of these kinds of people who bring different kinds of expertise and or having sort of a virtual board, if you will, your own network of, of experts. When you find the people
2: and you find they're good, I mean, I just don't let up. <laughs> I, need, I need meetings. You've just got to ask. But repeatedly, once you found somebody
1: good, you never let them (laughs) go. So the obvious question, as a female entrepreneur in the whole medical industry is, of course, still fairly male dominated in a lot of ways. So w- tell us some of your experiences, both both the things that made it a little harder as a female CEO, but there probably are also some things that were surprisingly easier because you were a female CEO.
2: Well, going going to the women's groups are clearly easier. Oh, okay, <laughs> yes, there's, right. There's some uh, w- uh, women VCs, etc. I think um, I think this is one reason that I have um, so many investors and did not go to the big VCs. Because it is a lot harder to get in and it's a lot harder for them to take you seriously. I think um, one thing that has helped me is that the technical expertise has always come from a male with real credentials, okay, whether it's engineering or whatever. So now I have a female, I have three people, three people in management not doing the engineering are all women, okay, CFO, executive director, and myself. And boy, do we get work done, no problem, and don't have v- virtually no problem getting into anywhere except the great big VCs, okay? And then I do have to, I don't want to say tout, but make a big deal out of who the full team is. So, for instance, we have um, a 35-year veteran of Fresenius as our VP of engineering. So he's worked on engineering for peritoneal dialysis catheter for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to know more than anybody we're talking to. So I think um, I have not, in, in Salt Lake, I don't have a particular problem because everybody knows my husband. Okay, so I can get in anywhere, whether they pay a bunch of attention is another story, but I can get in uh, and that isn't the case everywhere else. So I think when you talked about networking before, it's really important. And we talked to one really big clinic the other day to their venture fund and I had an investment banker contact them 3 times and he said Vicky I can't get in they're not returning any of my emails I got connected to a woman who made a connection for me and overnight I got an email and we had a call this week you know it
1: just it's helped in some ways and been difficult in some ways But do you have any particular advice you would give female entrepreneurs? I think you pay no attention, absolutely just no attention
2: to the fact if somebody doesn't want to see you. You just do everything the way you believe it should be done. I do not do anything different because I'm a female. Maybe your slide deck has to be better. Maybe your pitch has to be better. Maybe your memos in response to questions. But I don't see at the end of the day when somebody's making a decision to invest or not. Uh, I don't think it's come down to being a woman or a man. I think it comes down to the technology and the business case. So I I would not do anything different because you're a woman. I cannot think of one thing. Can I
0: finish with with uh, your life outside of work? Uh, it, yeah, do you have a life outside of work and how do you and how do you uh, sort of attack that uh, sort of big, big challenge for all founders and all CEOs, which is the work-life balance?
2: I block my calendar for two hours every morning and go to the gym six days a week. Mm-hmm. I'll unblock it if I have to. But basically, that is just anybody. They can have any evening, they can have any weekend. But I need those first two hours to get to the gym, get an hour workout, get back and recover. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, uh, my husband is older than me. So he's almost retired, not quite, but we do a lot of traveling, including we went to London in September for his birthday. Mm -hmm. We go to Paris every year in September for his birthday for a week. And then another week, we travel elsewhere. We go to wine country um we hike we go fly fishing so we do do other things but uh, other than taking care of my husband exercising and traveling <laughs> it's the business
0: can we just finish because we've got some um, listeners and viewers on both sides of the pond as you know um so it'd be just nice uh, for, for our British audience just to hear a bit about your views on the UK and what do you think of
2: London and what do you think of Europe as well oh okay well Okay, Paris is my favorite city in the entire world, London is number two. Oh. Uh, we've been going there for years. The Stafford Hotel in London, we've been there many times for Christmas. They have a beautiful, beautiful Christmas and Christmas Eve and um, services. It, it just, it's wonderful. So I, I, I love Europe to vacation in, et cetera, but we've also done a fair amount of business in Europe. We are most likely going to hire a very experienced microbiology lab in Manchester. And that's only after interviewing a half a dozen GLP labs and thinking that they ask the best questions to help us, and we're the most detailed, so we'll probably um, end up doing that. So I, I've worked with people in Europe professionally for my for my whole career, uh, including joint ventures and sales and visiting hospitals, and it's a different you know healthcare system, so we have to look at things a little bit differently than we do here. But um, I'm in infection prevention, and they get infections in the in Europe just like they get infections here. Absolutely. But I really like it for play. I mean, I, I love it.
0: And how do you find working working with Europeans versus working with Americans? Uh, what can you tell us in terms of a compare and contrast? What are the good things and less good things?
2: So that's a good question. I think um, they're totally knowledgeable. I mean, no difference in terms of using your brain power and discussing an issue. I'd say the biggest difference is that they're a little more social. (laughs) And like, maybe if you go to lunch, it's not a hundred percent (laughs) business. Maybe you get a glass of wine, but it's very cordial, I think is the best word that I would use. It's a little more civilized and a little less cutthroat. Okay, we got an agenda. We got to get through these 10 things at lunch or whatever. I mean, it's just a little easier, a little more laid back, but no difference in terms of the intellectual um, exchange of information. I mean, not at all as knowledgeable as can be. I mean, I have hired a patent infringement counsel all over Europe, okay, for one company we sued in, you know, London on Monday, Milan on Tuesday, somewhere else on Wednesday, and it took me six months and I did wine and dine but I put together a team that was unbelievable. So I got to work with the lawyers there. And I mean, it is different than working with the lawyers here.
0: Well, fantastic, Vicky. I mean, we could carry on talking to you for for hours on end, but (laughs) I know you need to go and and, uh, we've come to the end of our time. So Shirley, have you got one final wrap up question for Vicky?
1: Well, how are things going at Lightline? Oh, um, I, I think great. We have the
2: right team that we need to get our product cleared by FDA. And that is the only thing we're focused on. Nothing else. Wonderful. Uh, just getting to the finish line. And we're going to. And everybody is as passionate as I am. Super. We wish you all the luck in the world. Well,
0: look, thanks again for your time and and good luck with everything. We appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a
1: lot. Thank you. Another great interview. I found that absolutely fascinating. I'm a little biased since I know Vicky, but um, I picked up a number of interesting points in that interview. Yeah. Like uh, this concept of the importance of a network. And how many times in our busy days do we just say, you know, ah, I don't have time to talk to somebody. I don't know them that well. Ah, it's probably not worth it. And yet her very important point was that you never know. What's worth it or not and who you talk to, who they might talk to, who you might meet by these contacts, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess kind of associated with that is the concept of asking for help when you need it. Yeah. So the stronger and bigger a network is that you build, the more opportunities you have to access that network when you need them, when you need some specialty piece of advice. So that that really struck home. Yeah. How about you? What important point did you take away?
0: The one that probably sticks out for me is a general theme of tenacity, how tenacious you need to be uh, to start up a business and keep it going. Because there are so many challenges along the way. There's so many moments where it's stressful, uh, things that can keep keep you awake at night, and you just kind of somehow uh, build up that strength and power through, and just be super tenacious and and just get through it and and be a, a really effective problem solver, because otherwise you can get on top of you. So I think the mental toughness is a really important part of this, and and she. She definitely displayed that, I I thought, the mental toughness, and you need that. And um, um, I'm not sure I should share this, but I, I had a bit of a nickname that people gave me when things were going wrong, and I just wanted to carry on finding a solution, sorting it out. And I would be relentless about doing so. And so my little nickname became relentless. <laughs> so in times of, of strife, I had to become relentless to actually get through a particularly tough time and a tough moment.
1: And we'll never let you forget that. We'll never let you forget that.
0: <laughs> so on that point, it's been another interesting show, hasn't it, Shelley?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. And that's it for another episode. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Startup Sensations. We'll see
1: you next time. Bye bye.